You're listening to The PaveCast, a podcast from Partners for Automated Vehicle Education to illuminate the world of AV technology. Learn about PAVE and its mission by visiting www.pavecampaign.org. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Tara Andringa, and I'm the Executive Director of PAVE. Um, This is our 84th weekly panel discussion, and we're really excited for this important conversation today. Um, We all see that many people are not well served by our current transportation system, and we at PAVE believe that new technologies could offer the potential to create a better system, one that increases equity and safety and mobility and accessibility and more. Uh, We have this opportunity, but we won't reach that potential automatically. Um, We need to be thoughtful about the new system we put in place, and what we need to avoid is creating a new system only to realize the legacy problems with the old system persist. So we wanted to convene a conversation about Black Americans' experience with the transportation system. We want to look at at legacy issues that are ingrained in our current system and think about what we can do better to create a system that serves the needs of more people more effectively. So we have brought together a panel of AB experts to discuss these issues. And because this is such an important and complex issue, we knew that 30 minutes would be inadequate. So we divided our panel into two parts. The first part we'll watch live today and stay tuned for um, scheduling the second 30 minutes of this important conversation. Um, and with that, I want to turn it over to our incredible panelists. Um, I'd like to introduce Mr. Henry Greenidge, who is the Executive Vice President of Tusk Strategies, who will be the conversation leader today. Henry, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Tara. Good afternoon, everyone. It is my pleasure to be here with you today to help facilitate this important conversation about what autonomous vehicles could mean for Black Americans. So today we're going to have a great time. I do want to warn you, this is an equity conversation, and this this is meant to be one in which we can learn from each other. We're really fortunate to be joined by two leaders today in the transportation industry who have focused on emerging mobility, including electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. First, we have Dr. Nadia Anderson, who serves as Director of Federal Affairs at Enrix, and we also have Dr. Shelley Francis, who's the co-founder of EV Hybrid Noir. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go through their very extensive and impressive credentials, but I would be remiss if I did not add that when it comes to equity-focused work in transportation, much of our current understanding has been advanced by the contributions of Black women in particular. And so we're really fortunate to have two of those leaders here today who have worked at the highest levels with some of the top companies. And I encourage the audience to continue sending in questions and to follow up with them later. So I want to jump right in. The first question I'm going to pose to you, uh, Dr. Francis, and would love for you to help us set the stage here from a historical perspective. Can you talk a little bit about the Black American experience and what that has meant in our transportation system today, how racial disparities uh, have uh, come into play and how they've informed certain perspectives? Sure, absolutely. So this is exciting. I'm glad to be here with you both. And thank you to Pav for having us have this conversation. So one of the critical um, pieces to really frame this work is really thinking about how mobility policies, transportation has benefited different communities. And so in the work that we do, at EV Noir, and EV Hybrid Noir for that matter, we can't talk about the intersection of 
mobility and transportation without talking about how that history is really steeped with systemic disparities and inequities that we still see play out today in regards to where highways are placed, transportation corridors, where all the heavy industry pollution goes, and who has access to safe, affordable, and reliable mobility options. So um, with that in mind, just kind of giving you a very quick historical overview of, of what has shaped and informed the current transportation landscape that we see today, um, as well as what is shaping and informing the environmental justice movement, is that one key framework is thinking about this from the social determinants of health. And that's a public health framework. And basically, it, the framework states that you know, transportation, health and well-being doesn't happen in the vacuum. It's a holistic um, strategy. And so there's different proximate factors that impact one's health and well-being. It can be the environmental conditions. It can be whether or not you have opportunities to have a work, uh, you know, stable work for, uh, place and work um, opportunities, whether or not you have a medical home, healthcare access, access to fresh foods, a healthy diet, et cetera. And so transportation and mobility is one piece of that puzzle. And so is the environmental health aspects. And so that's the lens that we view uh, the work in this space in. And so thinking about the, you can't address transportation mobility by itself, you kind of have to address the, the ecosystem. So just keep that in mind as you're thinking about this conversation. So in terms of thinking about the historical impacts, we start with Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which was the mandate by the Supreme Court that says transportation, um, you know, buildings, facilities need to be separate, but equal. And that, that was the key word. But what we saw and knew happened was that the uh, access to mobility, the buildings, infrastructure, schools, they were anything but equal. Uh, they were definitely separate, though. And so, you know, coming out of, you know, the emancipation of slaves, 1865, where, where Black people were three-fifths of a person, then you're going into Plessy versus Ferguson, where, you know, you're kind of a person, but you're going to have separate, we don't want to have any interactions or dealing with you. You stay over here, we stay over there. Uh, then you move into the turn of the century, 1900. So the Supreme Court ruling that struck down uh, segregationist zoning laws was in 1917. And so that meant, okay, now there's going to be more integration. But many communities, particularly those in the southern states, figured out new ways to isolate uh, minority populations. And so that may have played out in like zoning laws that created Negro districts, which was the term that they uh, identified for Black and African-American people at that time. And so that was another way to alienate that community. But also at the same time, as they were putting in these zoning laws, they also put in weakened some of the laws so that heavy industry, the um, you know pollute, pollutant-driven uh, industry, manufacturing, and highways could pass through those communities. Then the, ha- the highways now came at a little later time uh, in the our his- historical trajectory. So quickly, because I want us to make, make sure we get to other pieces of this conversation. Then you have the National Housing Act, which really um, facilitated redlining and redlining was the process where African-American, Jewish communities and others couldn't get loans because simply because of how they identified and how they presented. And this was facilitated by the National Housing Act of 1934, as well as the Federal Housing Administration. Still seeing some of the impact of that today. Then moving forward in time, another 20 years, you have the Federal Highway Act. 
that highway, that act was the idea of like connecting America so that people could drive from one coast to the next coast. Okay, great. But what happened was, is that all communities really didn't benefit from the expansion of the highways and infrastructure um, like we like I guess the, the law was intended so. So the highways were built to connect the suburbs to the urban areas. And part of this is like there was white flight in the urban core during like the 20s, 30s, 40s. So as white uh, individuals, members moved out to the suburbs, they needed access to get back into the cities because that's where their place of employment was. So these uh, this highway infrastructure bill and this, this law helped build out the systems. However, what also happened was that Many of these highway systems, regardless of whether you're talking about Syracuse, New York, New Orleans, or um, Atlanta, Georgia, these highways came through Black and Brown communities, oftentimes intentionally um, to divide the communities um, and really decimate communities that were otherwise thriving because now, again, they were segregated. So they had to figure out how to do everything within the confines of their community. And when you put a highway or infrastructure through those communities, you're removing, basically erasing businesses, families, communities, churches, and all those places that communities need to to function. And so that's why it's really critically important to think about mobility and transportation, but also to to consider how the historical impacts are fueling and facilitating these conversations. And it's also feeding into why many communities are hesitant to engage, they're hesitant to, to trust because of these past experiences that they've had. So these are definitely things that we need to consider as we're thinking about new mobility, as well as we're thinking about who needs to be at the table. It needs to be people who are reflective of all diverse communities and all backgrounds so that we can really be um, you know, cognizant of how different um, you know, transportation and mobility um, aspects impact usage and impact availability. So I'll stop there so we could go into, uh, you know, another line of discussion.